Hello and welcome back to Nair Average, the podcast with Julie Young from KoreanAmericanStory.org. This week, we have our very own Executive Director, H.J. Lee, who co-founded KoreanAmericanStory.org with his wife, Teresa Cho Lee, nine years ago. He sat down with Julie to share how a pivotal moment in his life led him to where he is today and how KoreanAmericanStory.org came to be. Now, on to Julie. Hey everyone, it's Julie Young for Korean American Story and Not Your Average. And tonight, I think I have my most special guest that I've ever had. <laughs> I'm with H.J. Lee, who is an avid runner, a father, a husband, and the founder of KoreanAmericanStory.org, <laughs> to be official. <laughs> thanks for being here, well, H.J. thanks for having me. <laughs> on this side of the camera, because you're always here. Yeah, it is kind of weird. <laughs> um, so last week, we're filming Not Your Average with Jay Lee, the chef of Rice and Gold. And afterwards, you were talking to him about how you both grew up in Jackson Heights. Jamaica. Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And how his description Queens. of Queens, <laughs> Jamaica, Queens, and how his description of growing up there was essentially the same as yours, mm -hmm. but 20 years apart, yeah, 20 years different. Yeah, I was there in 1973. Yeah. He was there in 90s, I think. Which is crazy. Yeah. And so that just made me think, wait a minute, why have we never had HJ on Not Your Average? Because first of all, you're not your average. You started Green American Story. <laughs> and also, how interesting is that, that 20 years later, you know, the experience is, is essentially the same for mm. a young Korean American guy like growing up in Jamaica, mm. Queens, right? So let's start from the beginning, Ooh. like I always do. <laughs> so you're born in Korea. Yeah, I was born in Korea in 1962. And you came here with your family. In nine, I came to this country in 1973. So, so I was 11 years old. Yeah, uh -huh. so I had just finished sixth grade, and then I went back into sixth grade to kind of you know start all over again. Yeah. yeah. And tell us about your family makeup. Well, uh, mom, dad, and I have two other siblings. I'm the oldest, so I have a younger brother and a younger sister. So you come over and you're 11. Mm -hmm. What do you remember about that? I remember I didn't really want to leave. I was having a good time. I was a mm -hmm. you know young kid, um, but the family's moving, right? So I didn't really have a choice. I remember uh, hearing that about America, this was 1970. So, you know, Korean War ended in 53. So the economic pr prosperity really hasn't really hit Korea. Mm -hmm. And so I remember uh, hearing that the streets of America were paved with gold, wow. you know, and I was, uh, I think I was actually young enough to uh, believe it. And, but I can tell you that streets of Jamaica is not paved with gold. <laughs> yeah. How did, uh, how did your parents pick Jamaica? I think that was the hospital that my father got a job in oh, okay. from Korea. So okay. he was a doctor. And so that was where he got a job. And um, I remember one memory that I have distinctly is, um, it's kind of funny what you remember, you know, mm -hmm. but I don't remember a lot, but I remember that the plane ride and the stewardesses were coming around asking, what do you want to drink? And the only thing I could think of it is, uh, it, I guess what Americans would say, 7-Up, right? Or mm -hmm. Sprite. Mm -hmm. But in Korea, it was Chisung Saida. So it's like a seven-star cider. And that's actually Sprite. Oh. So I wanted cider, and they right. kept bringing me apple juice. Oh, oh. <laughs> and you're like, what's and this? I'm like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. And I remember just being very frustrated, you know, having that miscommunication. And I guess that was very indicative of, I guess, the kind of life that I would end mm -hmm. up having. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that I remember. Yeah. So then you get here, and you don't speak English. No. And did you start? You started school right away. Yeah, I started school right um, away. How was that? 
that was tough. Although, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of immigrant kids. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with uh, kids from Dominican Republic, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Egypt, you know, a lot of kids from all over the place. And so I played soccer at the local park and that you don't need, you know, to speak the language, right? So um, that's how I, I think I started to meet kids and we just started just spitting things out at each other and mm-hmm. that's how you learn. You yeah. know? So it took me, um, I remember being frustrated at how long it was taking me, but it probably wasn't more than a few, you know, several months, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. But you know, to get to a point where you're really comfortable, I think it took a lot longer, but just to be able to communicate, it was a relatively short time. Mm-hmm. And was your mom a caretaker or did she work as well? Yeah, she was the care- caretaker. My dad was the doctor. And then, um, but you know, life wasn't, as easy as you would imagine. I mean, he was head of surgery at one of the, uh, you know, big hospitals in Seoul, but mm. he had to do it all over again. Mm. You know, so he started with internship and right. residency and all that. So, you know, we didn't really make a lot of money. So one of the things that I remember is just late at night, I remember my uh, mom sitting up late at night by a lamp, lone lamp, you know, everything else is dark except for the lamp. And she was beating these necklaces um, to make costume jewelry mm. because that's how they made extra money to make ends meet. Mm. And so I, I've also heard of other stories of, you know, wives of doctors who've had to do like waitressing jobs mm. or whatever jobs that they could mm-hmm. uh, because the pay wasn't really that great. Right, mm-hmm. right. Wow. And do you remember how long it took you to learn English? I don't really have a clear memory of that. It just seems like a natural flow. <laughs> yeah, which is so amazing though, right? Think about that. Yeah, but I feel like it took me years to really get to a point where I felt like I'm pretty confident with the language, you know? Uh-huh. Like whether it's accent or like full understanding, whatever it is, it took it took many years. Mm. But I, I feel like the communication part was relatively quick. Especially like playing a game of soccer. There's just Yeah, or even just like, you know, playing around as kids. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so how long do you think it took you to not feel just Korean and start feeling Korean American? Oh, probably not until I got much older. (laughs) Because it's an issue of uh, self-identification, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was always made to feel other growing Mm up. Um, You know, an example is like, there was, a, there was a Chinese girl in my sixth grade class and they would always pair me up with her, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> poor this guy and that girl, you know, sitting on a fence trying to make a dollar of 99 cents, <laughs> K-I-S-S-I-N, you know, it's always her. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're the only Asian kids in the right. school. And so, yeah, there's definitely that kind of thing going on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I never felt, I never thought about Korean American identity until much later in my life, Mm. I would say. And did you, like in that feeling other, Mm -hmm. did you have, where was your solace? Did you have a Korean church or, Mm. you know, where did you find that community where you were just sort of free from that feeling other? Yeah, I think church had a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, There I had friends, uh, but even throughout schools, I've always had a close friend that helped like, my best friend in uh, junior high school was a guy named David Vavnitsky. Uh, <laughs> he's like a Boy Scout model. Ended up with dating a girl that I really liked who was Korean. <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, why does he have her and not me? Uh-huh. And I think 
I, I remember that very clearly, actually. And I remember him being very funny. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I guess humor is a very important part of having mm-hmm. a relationship. I remember making a mental note of it. Mm-hmm. What about the racial aspect? Yeah, I think maybe college is when I really uh, noticed myself uh, commuting with a lot of other Koreans. Mm. Um, up until that point, I would say that I didn't really go out of my way seeking Korean friends. It happened by uh, default because I would go to Korean churches, mm-hmm. meet, you know, have friends. And they were good friends, but I didn't really go out seeking it. It just mm. kind of happened. Right. Uh, but in college, you have a choice. Right. Like, I didn't go to church. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm too busy studying. <laughs> <laughs> so I had the option, but, uh, but I found myself um, seeking that community. Because mm. I guess I, I didn't have it. And it, w- it wasn't until it was gone that I noticed I was missing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's oftentimes the case, right? Which is oftentimes the case. Where did you go to college? I went to Columbia College. And what were you studying? I was studying pre-med like every other Korean kid (laughs) in the 1980s. Um, But I switched to East Asian studies Mm. uh, back. I graduated in 84. So Mm. by the time I graduated, I was an East Asian studies major. How did your parents feel about that? That's a good question. So, you know, a lot of times, I guess we don't really... Uh, in my family, I guess we didn't really discuss a lot of these things. And I internalized a lot of things that I think is what they want. Mm-hmm. But without really having full discussion about mm-hmm. it. So, you know, the and part of it is also because I didn't know what else I would do. Mm-hmm. I mean, because yep. what are my options? I don't mm-hmm. even know. Because mm-hmm. I didn't have a lot of examples around me. Right. Other than people who own shops or yeah. something like that. And you know, we, there weren't other professionals doing other things. Yeah. So being a doctor is the only thing I, I could think of. So it, it naturally went in that direction. But by, I would say, the first year, I knew I wasn't going to be a doctor. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many things that <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not. Yeah. And I, I should have known earlier. But so then I've had internal discussions with myself, you know, where I would have this conversation with my dad. Like I'd say, Dad, I don't want to be a doctor. And then he'll say this, and I say this. And, you know, I I had this thing going on in my head for, I would say, a couple of years. Mm. And finally, I I just mustered up enough courage, and I went to my father and said, I don't think I could do this. I I don't think I want to be a dad. And he looked at me, and he goes, what took you so long? Wow. <laughs> I was like, wow. what? I was wow. like, no, no, no. That's not what you're wow. supposed to say. Yeah, that's you're not how it to played say, out in my Exactly. Head. That's yeah. not how it played out. Wow. I was like, whoa, that's, that's kind of... amazing. Yeah, that was kind of odd, actually. Um, so full acceptance. Yeah, pretty much. And mm-hmm. they said, you know, you should do what you really want to do. Wow. And I was like, okay. That was the other problem. It's like, what is what? that? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you right. wish for freedom and you get it and you're like, what do I do with this? <laughs> Right. So that was hard. So for me, um, I started to just kind of think about what is it that I enjoy doing. And I really enjoyed reading stuff. And I, I started started studying East Asian culture a little bit more. I started to take classes like landscapes and gardens and Japanese and Chinese poetry. And, <laughs> and I wrote my thesis on post-war Korean short stories. Yeah. And I took three years of Korean at Columbia. Oh, wow. And by that point, first year was easy. Like uh-huh. flew by. No <laughs> Second year, it was hard. Third year, I was the only student with my professor. <laughs> wow. And that was one of the hardest classes I've ever taken wow. in my life. But And your parents spoke to you in Korean at home, no? Yeah, mostly. My dad could kind of flip-flop mm-hmm. around, but yeah. 
And that, also my Korean was pretty good yeah. uh, because I took Korean. And also after college, I worked for a company dealing with Korean customers. Mm -hmm. So that helped a little bit yeah. as well. Yeah, 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 definitely. So when you're in college, you find sort of a Korean community, mm -hmm. would you say? And how did that help shape your identity at that stage? I think honestly, <laughs> I don't think I was a very pensive person mm. back then. I don't think I I became awakened. I don't want I was gonna say woke, but that seems that sounds so bad. <laughs> I, I wasn't really fully awakened to my consciousness as a as a mature human being, I would say until after college. Mm. So a lot of it, I think, was just intuitive. Mm. Like I just did what felt right. Right. Without fully understanding why. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it's only in retrospect that I I think back and I think, oh, that's what was going on. I was looking for a community. Mm. You know, but honestly, at the time, I don't think I thought about it. So I was also in a you know ultimate frisbee team. So that was a big part of my life as well. Mm -hmm. So they became my family as well. Mm -hmm. But you know, I also had a compartmentalized bunch of Korean friends where we ate ramen noodles and you know <laughs> kimchi jjigae and all that and then you know which I think a lot of us did back then because food Korean food was not as widely accepted right. as it was today right it is today so I think we've had to compartmentalize our friendships in many cases mm. so yeah. I, think, I think I did that but so are there any other like significant memories that you have from that time in your life like in college undergrad <laughs> yeah lots <laughs> 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 that helps really shape you. Yeah, lots. Uh, That's one of them. Are we going there? <laughs> I don't. I mean, it's up to you. It's up to you. Oh, it's up to you. I think I have to kind of uh, talk about honestly. To uh, I think fully explain who I am. I think you have to understand the mistakes that I've made in my life, and I think that fully defines who I've become. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the reason why I think I have a very strong sense of empathy mm -hmm. for people who are struggling, who um, may make mistakes in their lives mm -hmm. and such. So I would say that uh, drugs were a big problem for me in mm -hmm. college. Mm -hmm. um, I think the biggest problem, I think, was with cocaine. Mm -hmm. I think that was really the most insidious drug that really affected me. Um, also, like just general lack of maturity. Mm -hmm. So I look back and I think to myself, my God, I don't think I would have really liked this guy. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. At least this is in retrospect. Yeah, right? So yeah. it's really hard to say. Yeah. Uh, I must not have been terrible because I had friends. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe it's just I'm just being overly critical. But I do feel that there was a lot of mistakes that I've made. I've, I could have been so much nicer to people. Um, I think I could have been a lot nicer to a lot of the women. Mm -hmm. I think I could have been uh, a lot more caring friend. Mm -hmm. um, and I probably really should have done a lot less drugs. Mm. So um, when did that start, though? I would say in college. Um, and I think, kind of looking back at it, I think it probably had a lot to do with my avoidance of dealing with, you know, what am I going to do? Like, mm. what am I doing? Mm. You know, just not knowing and understanding where I was going. And that provided a lot of pressure for me, yeah. uh, a lot of stress. Uh, and, you know, I often think to myself, it's such a first world problem. <laughs> like, there's people starving right. and stuff. Right. But I've also come to appreciate that even though it's not life or death, the struggle is real. Of you course. know, and, and I think that's that's true for many kids as well these days. Yeah. And you may not think of it as like, 
what do you, you know, you have parents who pay for your college, mm-hmm. you have everything you want to eat, whatever it is that you need, you got it. Right. What are you stressed out about? Right. Right. And that's one perspective. But when you're in that situation, I think it's the weight of expectations, perhaps, mm-hmm. that you've placed upon yourself. I was going to say the pressure comes from yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And but you think it comes from somewhere else, but right. really ultimately it comes yeah. from yourself, right? Because your dad was so well, accepting, and I didn't maybe know you that hadn't had that much yet. Later. <laughs> but still, like the fact that he, I feel like because he had that reaction mm-hmm. when you had the conversation, there couldn't have been that much, you know, like in some other families where, especially traditional Korean mm-hmm. families where the parents are like, you have to be a doctor or you yeah. have to be a whatever. Like I feel like you must not have had that. But it's it's different though, like. To give you an example, my dad was the kind of dude he would be like to punish me. Let's say you know the corporal punishment idea back in Korea. This I remember. He would say, "You did something wrong. You're gonna get whipped. Uh-huh. I need you to go find me a switch." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that happened of, in Harlem too with my husband. So. I mean, that's, that's kind of like sadistic. Yeah, it's sadistic in some ways. Yeah. I'm sure you know. He thought that's what was needed, but. You know, you picked up, pick up a big one. You're like, oh, it's gonna stink right. like so much. And you pick a thin one. You're like, oh, it's gonna stink so much. By the time you come home, you're like a mess. You're like, oh, right. And um, but that was my punishment, right? Right. So right. maybe it's that kind of a thing where you internalize yeah. so much. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I, I think. That kind of stress, and maybe I wasn't meeting up to the expectations I wanted to, and that added more stress. So you, you're looking for escape, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. and so you, you know, for me, I guess that's why I turned to drugs. And mm-hmm. uh, that. So how I think, much did it impact your life? It impacted me greatly. But you were able to stay in college the whole time. Yeah, barely, I would say. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Um, but you end up doing things that you're really not proud of, and yeah. I don't really want to go into specific yeah, yeah. details of it. Yeah. But let's just say that there was a moment uh, when probably the lowest moment of my life was one day I was like completely coked out, lying in my living room, thinking to myself, I'm going to die. Mm. My heart is just racing like crazy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think I even told my roommate, I'm like, you got to take me to the hospital, you know, and just that experience of being so low mm. like that, where you just are so ashamed of yourself yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Um, I think that was kind of the beginning of turnaround time for mm. me, uh, where I decided that, yeah, basically when you hit the rock bottom, yeah. you know it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, God, this is terrible. Yeah. You know, this, this is not where I want to be. Right. And I think that was the beginning of the turnaround for me. Mm. And um, Were your parents aware at any point or? Well, you know, there was this one time uh, I had a little vial. I came home, and my dad found it. Wow! And he's like, and I looked at him, lied to his face. I said, "My friends." Mm. And my dad just looked at me, walked out the room, but he didn't say a word. Mm. But the look on his face, set oh it all. my God, set it all. Oh, set yeah. it all. And you know, so yeah, that was uh, that's something that I wish I could do all over again in mm. my life. But you, so how did you recover? I think it was just cold turkey, pretty much. Wow. <laughs> I mean, wow. really. I mean, I have to tell you, there were moments when I was sitting in a room up in 138, you know, 100 something street up in Broadway, Spanish Harlem. Walk into a house, there's a room full of guys with guns, you know, in their plastic covered sofas. Right. <laughs> Big bricks of stuff. 
I mean, this was when I think coke and crack was really rampant. Yeah. I mean, this is when you go to Morningside Park and you step on crack sure. you know, and you hear it. Yeah. So, I mean, I really could have been dead a couple yeah. of times you yeah. know, easily. Um, but, but I didn't. Somehow managed to get out of it. And uh, yeah, it was, it was really uh, pretty much hitting that rock bottom just really was a splash of cold water on yeah. my face. Yeah. But so cold turkey, you just... Pretty much. I don't think there's any other way. Mm. And it was hard, but, you know. Did you have a lot of friend support? Actually, I had to uh, abandon all my friends, mm. actually. That makes sense. For me to survive. Right. And I felt bad about that, too. Mm. You know, because I felt like I abandoned all my friends at the right. time. Right. But I just needed to do that in order for me to survive. Yeah. I mean, literally survive. Yeah. And, yeah, I wish I could have been more articulate, more caring and be able to explain what I was going through. But in reality, I'm just trying to live. You're just trying to live. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so that, you know, I didn't feel good about either. So there are a lot of things that I didn't feel good about, you yeah. know, and it's just something that I had to do. And um, I'm not I'm not proud of it, uh, you know, but it is what makes me who I am today. Right, right. And you, you learned from it, obviously. Yeah. And I think the fact that you share it and can share it is so caring, really. Like you sharing that, like how many people, honestly, will see this and be like, what? What the fuck? Like they're going to rewind and be like, what did he just say? But I think <laughs> I it's so know. important to have, yeah. you know, older yeah. generations share these stories because a lot of times younger generations just think like, oh, you know, you're far removed and you don't get it. <laughs> But we do. Yeah, right? we, we do. Get it. We get it. Yeah. And I think also, like, a lot of younger generations have problems with drugs, like, serious problems. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes different they drugs, don't get yes. different drugs, but, yeah. yeah. And they don't Same get, effect. yeah, how much of a problem it is. Yeah. So I think if more people talked about yeah. it, it and would. And, yeah, it, it's, it's insidious. Yeah. It's seductive and it's beautiful. It's an and escape. That's what, that's what makes it so difficult to get yeah. out of it. Yeah. You know, and... That's why I said, you know, in the beginning of the conversation, I said, you know, it's hard for me to be too judgmental mm -hmm. on others. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, I've been at the rock bottom. If mm -hmm. you've seen me, I mean, I've seen myself there. So it's hard for me to, you know, be critical or judgmental about mm -hmm. other people mm -hmm. and their mistakes. Which is one of the best things about you now. I guess I so. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. So that um, experience helped yeah. you to become that way. Right? It didn't seem to help my son, though. <laughs> I'm really rough on them. <laughs> Dads are so hard on their sons. It's crazy. I know. That's another. I think it's because whole, we, we see like the we see ourselves. You see yourselves, in them yeah. And and things that we don't like about ourselves and totally. reflected in them, and that's what drives us crazy. Totally, totally. So yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> but that's actually quite impressive. So cold turkey, you recognize that you gotta like get rid of your friends and all of that stuff. Well, to it's survive. not like getting rid of my friends. It's more like I need to leave them because it's not really them per se it's like right. all of us are in the same situation but like drug use is just habitual yeah so i in order for me to get out i had to change my habit. To change habit it's like quitting cigarettes right you know there was two times when i couldn't really quit one was you know after a meal two was going to the bathroom like i always felt like i had to have a cigarette mm. you know and this was uh you know when i was smoking and stuff but it's you got to change yeah that you know, habit basically. Yeah. yeah. Alter yeah. the stuff, you know, yeah. patterns. Thank you for sharing that because I really do think it's so <laughs> important. But so you are, so when did you go like 
junior year, senior year? When did that happen? When did you start your recovery? I would say after college. Oh, after? Mm -hmm. oh, okay. So what did you do after college for a job? I worked for a shipping company called US Lines. Um, so actually, no. When I graduated, I had no idea what I was going to do. So a friend of mine said, hey, you know, I think the provost's office is looking for a secretary. Okay. So I applied, got the job. And then the secretary, the other secretary that was there was looking at jobs. I wasn't. She comes back and says, you know, they're looking for somebody who can speak Korean, working for a sales and shipping company. I'm like, oh, thanks. So I go, I apply, I get the job. Even throughout that first, I worked there for about three and a half years, and that was actually at World, One World Trade 94. Even throughout that first job, I think I was like still doing drugs. Mm. And that affected my job mm -hmm. greatly. Mm -hmm. And... That was a whole different ugly story, but um, but it was probably after that job mm -hmm. that I really started to turn things around. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, for about three and a half years, it was pretty bad. Wow, wow! And your parents the whole time just what were they? They were praying for me, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If I had to bet, I would say that, and I mean that in the most serious way. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much they really knew, and mm -hmm. I don't know. Hopefully, they won't see this video. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say. What about your kids? Uh, Have you shared this with your kids? Maybe small parts of it, but mm. not the full extent, probably. Mm. Uh, primarily because, you know, they were younger. But yeah, yeah. but I, I would tell them. That's so amazing because I'm just sort of skipping around a little bit. But, mm -hmm. you know, as you know, like one of the things I've admired about you so much is how open you are with your kids. How open-minded you are mm. with them. You have no sort of expectation around them as far as who they are you know, and like what they do. Like you're so open-minded, you know, with Nina and with, Yeah. I mean, Kevin, you're harder and maybe it's a different dynamic, but just your acceptance of whatever they're exploring or trying to be or, you know, that type yeah. of thing has been a great example for me. Do you think that this experience has helped you to be that way? Um, I think it probably did, but also um, I think it has to do with my kids. I mean, like Nina, for example, is uh someone who's constantly forced me to confront my own biases and, you know, the way I think and just... But you could have gone a totally different way that with that. <laughs> like, I think that a lot of true. kids do that for their parents, but true. they're like, uh-uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah, maybe that has something to do with it. But I remember, you know, um, one time I was driving Sonny, <laughs> our mutual friend. The uh, whole reason for all of this. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, I was driving her home after, I think, a Bible study or something one time and... Uh, and I don't know, we were just sharing stuff and I was just really confessing to her all the things that I feel bad about. And and I think she's probably the first person who looked at me and said, HJ, that's what makes you who you are though. Without those experiences, it wouldn't be you. Totally. And, um, you know, she said it's, you know, yeah, you could feel bad about it, but you could also look at it as life learning experience. And I just remember that, you know, that conversation very clearly. Mm. And I, don't, I have no idea if she remembers it, but I've, I did share with her that that meant a lot to me to hear that. It's like a light bulb uh, for you. And actually, the, the most important thing she said to me was, um, and I'll never forget it, she goes, you have to forgive yourself. Mm. And I said, I don't feel like I have to forgive myself. Mm. Like, And then I went home and I started I start to really think about it. Yeah. And she was right. Yeah. I was beating myself up. Yeah. You know, like... I was such a jerk. Yeah. I can't believe I did these things. Yeah. All these things, right? Yeah. And she says, you have to forgive yourself first. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the most profound things that someone said to me. Yeah. And that really just really changed me. But I don't know if you've done it a thousand percent. 
Because even when you were talking about it before, you're mm. sort of like, I could have been nicer. And, and there's this sort of yeah. little bit I mean, of... I think I would always feel that way, though. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because, yeah, it is something I regret. Yeah. You know, but I've moved on. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm talking about it in retrospect. And, yeah, I mean, I still feel that way. But maybe I haven't forgiven myself 100%. But like many things in life, I believe in process. Mm-hmm. Right? Like forgiveness is a goal. <laughs> like love is a goal. You know? Holiness is a goal. Like to me, these are all goals mm-hmm. that we strive towards. Mm-hmm. You know, but you know, it's not a zero one hundred. It's percentages. I think. I kind of think though that forgiveness is the hardest one out of all. It this. is really hard, especially forgiving yourself. <laughs> I mean, it's hard enough trying to forgive someone else. Yeah, but trying to forgive yourself. I think so. That shit yeah. is hard. <laughs> That Sounds like hard. you're speaking from experience. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I guess that's a whole different uh, <laughs> that's another episode. episode. <laughs> yeah, but um, but yeah. So I moved. I, I kind of moved a little bit mm-hmm. out of order there. But so I want to fast forward a little bit into how and when and why you started Korean American Story, because you were a executive in mm-hmm. marketing. I was in business development mm-hmm. for high tech companies. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, selling technology to mobile phone industry and computers and things like that. And traveling for that yeah, and long hours lot, and hours. all of that stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I remember, so our mutual friend, Sunny, mm-hmm. and I'm working with her and she says to me, oh, my friend is starting this amazing organization called mm. Korean American Story and you should check it out. Mm. There's a website. And so I check it out. And at the time, my kids were turning three. And I I was three when I was adopted. So I was having intense, intense emotions about that. And so I wrote a piece for you. That was awesome. And sent it off. And you published it before. I was like, wait, that was just a draft. (laughs) That was just a draft. I didn't edit it. It was um, awesome, though. But that was. (laughs) I was like, wait, I didn't know he was going to. But so, and then here we are. So tell me the story um, of how you got the idea to start Korean American Yeah, Story. so as it happens often in you know different careers, I hit a point where I was laid off from a job, and so it gave me a chance to really think about it. It was probably around 2009, so nine years ago, and I would have been in my mid-40s, I guess. It's actually started about seven years prior to that. Mm. I start to really th- have this sense of uh, anxiety in my life. And it's going to sound odd, but ever since I was young, I've always felt that I was special. Mm. I felt like I had a special mission in life, and uh, I thought I was going to do something great that's going to change the world in some way. But you didn't know what it was. But I had no idea what it was. I feel the same thing. I literally just had that conversation <laughs> with Jamal recently. I've always yes. had it. Always God, had it, right? That's so scary. We're like, yes. I know. <laughs> no, seriously. Okay. So, but then I'm like, I haven't done anything. Mm. Clock's ticking, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm like... What am I going to do? And so I started to have this anxiety. So I went to my pastor at the time, Tia Kreitz, who's a terrific pastor. And I said to her, you know, and I'm telling her this feeling. And as I'm talking about it, something occurred to me. And what I realized at that point was that even though I wasn't talking about becoming a billionaire or anything like that, it was just about making some impact in the right. world, right? Mm-hmm. So it was kind of altruistic. Yeah. But I remember at the time thinking that even that was actually kind of selfish thought in my mind. Mm. Meaning it was about me, Mm. how I'm changing the world, 
how I'm impacting the world. It's about my work and my the results that I will achieve. Mm. So for me, as a you know Christian person, I start to really think about what is it that God's ask you know charging me to do, mm-hmm. as opposed to what is it that I think I need to do. Mm-hmm. It's a slight shift in perspective, but that helped me to get rid of my anxiety because mm. I realized who's to say that being a hus- good husband for those years, raising children, providing for them, um, serving a church community for many years as I did, who's to say those aren't significant? Right. Like, right. why are you diminishing these things, right. Right? right? Maybe that is what God's will for you is. Mm-hmm. Why are you making it less than what it could be? Right. So I thought, oh, okay. You know? And so when I came to accept that, that anxiety just washed out of me. Mm. And I was like, this is good. Seven years or so later, I get the same sense of kind of what I call calling mm. to start Korean American story. And it's a feeling. But I think the difference this time is that it wasn't about me wanting to impact the world in some way. It was really about me feeling like I am being called to do something because there's need that needs to be addressed. Mm. Although we're not a Christian organization by any means, mm-hmm. but you know, that is kind of the genesis mm-hmm. of what I felt mm-hmm. and what I felt to do as a, as a man of faith. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why in our, in our mission statement, we're very specific about uh, wanting to make sure that the voices of those whose voices have not been heard before mm-hmm. are included, mm-hmm. that we're intentionally an inclusive organization, right. right? All that is in there because of at least my understanding of my faith mm. as being an inclusive, mm-hmm. you know. For me, my God is an inclusive God. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a reflection of that. Yeah. So I think that's, um, that's how the idea came about. As to what it was to become, um, it actually comes from my Columbia core curriculum education. <laughs> my, I remember reading stories about the Medici family in Italy during the Renaissance where they would actually commission works of art mm. and they would pay people. And you know it was a symbiotic relationship where they would get works of art and then they in turn would support the artists. And I thought, hmm, I love art, I love literature, I love things, but I'm not necessarily the creator. Mm-hmm. But I do know what I think is needed. Mm-hmm. So I knew I wanted to do something within the Korean American community and about our stories. It's just what I was just wasn't sure what it was gonna be. Mm-hmm. That took a little time to really fine tune it. Um, what but, about the Korean grocer story? Yeah, that that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. And that, that has to do with uh, uh, the image that I've always carried in my uh, head, which is um, coming home one morning from Columbia, uh, when I was at Columbia, like twilight of the morning, and uh, I just had this image of this Korean ajishi sitting in a box, polishing the apple, arranging it. And prior to that, there had been it just all, it was all just you know bodegas. There were no Korean grocers back mm-hmm. then, you know, in the '80s. It was just beginning. So watching that man put that down, uh, for some reason, I had that image in my head that I carried with me. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, um, I would think to myself, oh, that's such a quintessential immigrant experience. You know, whether that or whether it's a dry cleaners, whatever it is, mm-hmm. it, that image would speak volumes. And that's when I start to really think about the power of image. Mm-hmm. And I think the second time was it in Chinatown in the 90s. It was a street fair and they had these boards and these little Chinese ladies had uh, pictures of Chinese railroad workers with coolie, you know, the coolies who had mm-hmm. heads shaved off with the ponytails, you know, very stereotypical stuff. But it was a photo 
And I said to them, like, what, what is this? And they said, well, it's transcontinental uh, continental railroad workers. They built the railroad. Yeah. I knew that, but seeing those images mm -hmm. was so impactful for me. Yeah. And the other thing I realized is that these Chinese ladies spoke to me in perfect English. And so you're like, wow, mm. Chinese have been here for a long time, yeah. right? So you start really thinking about, you know, what my stereotypes are, what, you know, what the impact of our communities might have had, mm. you know, celebrating that, preserving it and being able to see it and explain it through images and writing and all that, which I, I thought would be really powerful. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how it started, the mm -hmm. genesis of that. But initially, it was kind of tough getting, you know, going because it meant I was doing this full time. And recently, you know, I, I, we started to like include Teresa as a co-founder, and John Lim came up to me one time and goes, "When did that start?" <laughs> and I said, "Actually, it started in the beginning. It's just that now I'm recognizing it. And that is when you're in a marriage. I mean, you know this. You can't do something without impacting the other person mm -hmm. in a great way." Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you give up 50% of the income, the weight of that falls on the other person. Mm -hmm. Right. So it may be your decision to do that, mm -hmm. but it's kind of an unfair burden that you're putting on the other person. It's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. So I wish I was a little bit more vocal in the beginning stages mm -hmm. with my wife mm -hmm. to talk about these things because she was just kind of following along with me mm -hmm. and supporting, supporting me. Yeah. But you know, maybe it's part of it is because I just wasn't even sure exactly what it was going to be, right, right? right? But she was there to really support that process. And, and she's really had tough time, you know, being supportive in right. a lot of situations because she's feeling the burden of yeah. the whole financial burden for the family. Yeah. And so really, I mean, subsequently, you know, she's come on board and mm. I mean, literally on the board <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> and really been an active member. Mm -hmm. But even before then, she was there from the birth. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I couldn't really have done it without her. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just no way. I just happened to be in a good situation where I was able to do that. I mean, I'm not going to tell everyone that you should all quit your jobs and do it. I mean, that's just <laughs> it's unrealistic. Not easy. Yeah, well, it's not realistic, do it. <laughs> right? But I just happened to be at a particular stage in my life. We happened to be in a particular stage in our lives where this was possible. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's how it became. Yeah. And so now we're about to celebrate our ninth year. And how do you feel like looking mm. on the, the past nine years from your idea, yeah. your spark of yeah. an idea to... I'm so thankful, actually, uh, for people like you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that serendipity of writing that, that thing I published without even checking. With <laughs> people like Jan, Zach, you know, late, lately, Kevin. I mean, I'm so pleased that so many people, I think, have really come on board. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I know it's not, for many people, it's not just about the gig. Right. I'd you say know? most of the people involved yeah. with us. Right, it's just not about the gig. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's, uh, it's a good ecosystem that we've created where we have people that like working with us. They believe in our mission. So, yeah, I'm, I'm extremely pleased that, you know, there's so many people that have really contributed mm -hmm. to the success of the organization yeah. and our board is terrific. Yeah. Is it bigger than you would have ever imagined? Is it different than how you would have imagined? Like what? I think both. I thought as you know from a businessman's perspective, I thought it was going to be bigger. <laughs> but from impact perspective, I think we've done mm -hmm. amazing things with mm -hmm. very little. Yeah. I mean, I, I think yeah. it's really quite amazing yeah. actually. Um but the thing that I've been thinking a lot about recently is really just the whole concept of 
I don't want to. I don't want to do something unless we're going to change the world. Mm-hmm. That's something that's really just. I don't know. Just constantly being said to me in my head. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have. I rather die as an organization, and try something. Try you know. Try to do something significant. Mm-hmm. Than just kind of trying to maintain a status quo of just being comfortable in our little groove. I don't know. I think that's how you change the world. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to, I think, constantly challenge ourselves as an organization to push it. You know, so yeah, that's something that's been on my mind about mm-hmm. you know the thought of like what can we do to really affect change mm-hmm. in a significant way. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about you know your role mm-hmm. in leading this organization, creating it, founding it. Mm-hmm. Is it you know? Would you ever have imagined, like your twenty-seven-year-old self, that you would be the founder of a nonprofit organization? That, no, never. Yeah. I mean, as I told you, I was I was a complete asshole yeah. at twenty-seven. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really self-absorbed, myopic, self-satisfying person yeah. that I, you know, I can't believe I was. Yeah, but it's so amazing, right? Like how so I think about like you youngins who are like. You know, think that you know what you want to do or be, and then you get in your thirties and you're like, "Oh, my life is not the way I thought it was going to be." Right? And then it's like, <laughs> "Dude, you have no idea what you're going to be doing in ten years, and it's probably going to be something you never even thought of." Yeah. Right? But also, I think uh, we have opportunities for several uh, iterations. Yeah. Of careers. Yeah. You know, and yeah. so I think it's hard to imagine people when you're in your twenties. It's hard to imagine yourself in your fifties. Mm-hmm. You know, but. Yeah, there's definitely many opportunities in life. I think, and I, I you know, earlier today we we're talking to Doug about that, right? And where he said, "I would have told my younger self to take more risks." Mm-hmm. I thought that was very appropriate. Yeah, and I, I would say that that's a, yeah, that's a good advice. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, most definitely. H day, tell me something nobody knows about you. <laughs> <sighs> well, I think you just revealed it earlier. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was enough, actually. <laughs> yeah, that might actually be enough for that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think everyone knows about. It. Yeah, yeah, everyone knows. That. Yeah, I think everyone I think, knows like, that. Everyone I love knows to. Yeah. that you can cook like up a storm, <laughs> and that you know your wines, and that you can't go out to dinner without HJ like giving a whole like breakdown <laughs> oh of every ingredient. All right, you don't like... need to embarrass me. <laughs> um, but what do we not know about you? Yeah, I guess uh, I, I guess there's a certain part of me that still is trying to forgive myself mm. for all the mistakes I've made that I didn't even realize that you know you pointed it out yeah. <laughs> that maybe I haven't fully forgiven myself mm. and I would say that's probably that's accurate. It's a hard one. Yeah, that is a hard one. So I think I already answered what everybody knows about you. But is mm. there anything else that you want to add to that? I wear toe socks. Oh, that's right. He wears toe <laughs> socks. We all know that too. Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some good ones. Okay, all right. But HJ, I'm actually really glad that we did this because I do think that it was. I know you were a little bit hesitant to do this because yeah. you're like, I don't know, if people are gonna care. But really, like, I know that everybody here was like, what, you know? <laughs> and I think it is so important to share the vulnerability that that we've experienced to help us get to where we are. And mm. obviously, Korean American Story is an amazing thing that you have birthed. So I'm really glad that you're on this. Well, thank you for thank the opportunity. You. Cheers. <laughs> Drinking with Julie. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> This episode of Not Your Average was produced by Julie Young and edited by AJ Valente. Thanks to Kimberly Young's son for allowing us to use her artwork for our logo. 
Follow her on Instagram at Kimberly Young Sun and visit her website, KimberlyYoungSun.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. If you have any suggestions or thoughts about the podcast, please write a review on iTunes and rate us as well. Feel free to message us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and visit our website, KoreanAmericanStory.org. Nigger Average is part of KoreanAmericanStory.org, dedicated to capture, create, preserve, and share the stories of the Korean American experience. Thanks for listening.